0: be seated. good morning uh, My name is Mike Hall I'll go ahead and have the conversation for a lot of you right now. Oh man it's not Eric this morning and uh, well we'll get out at 11:15. that's the good news, right <laughs> Hey super uh, super thankful for getting to be here this morning. Um, some of you might not know this I'm actually on part-time staff here at Bethel so my job at Bethel, uh, really, is twofold. I help oversee some of the the operations uh, at this campus downtown, uh, and I'm also the uh, pastor of engagement. Help people get engaged. Now, not married engaged. So that would be, uh, I would not be doing a very good job if that was uh, if that was my day. We tried to promote this single thing a couple weeks ago, and I botched it evidently. But. Uh, to help people get engaged in our community. So uh, either get to start something new, a new ministry, or get plugged into an existing ministry. Uh, that's what I get to do, and I and I love doing that. My other job, or the other stuff that I do, is a really a bit of an uh, entrepreneur. So I start things, kind of get them going, and then I sell them. And sometimes it works, and, and sometimes it doesn't. Right now, uh, currently I have a, a marketing company, and a lot of what we talk about in our company is what is our value proposition? That's the word we use. What value do we bring to the table for our customers? So they're going to pay us money, and we now have a value proposition. So we have to say, hey, this is how our product will help you save money, or this is how our service will give you better margins, or we'll be able to take something off your plate. We'll be able to make your life easier. We'll be able to make you happier in some kind of way, right? So that is our value proposition. Well, this morning... I have a value proposition for you. So I'm not going to ask for money. We already did that earlier on in the service. Uh, No. Uh, What I'm going to ask is, for the next just little bit, that you pay attention. Now, I know about 20% of you are already planning on that. But for the rest of you, that, that would be to lean in just to pay attention. And what I have to offer, the value proposition, is that you will learn an entire book of the Bible. We are going to go all the way through a full book. Now, before you get too panicky, it's the book of Jude, and it's a short book. Uh, It's not the shortest book in the Bible, but it's one of them. It's 25 verses. And if you have been a casual Bible reader, and you've opened up the book of Jude in the past, you probably, or maybe you might have gotten started, and you'd go through the introduction, and then you get to maybe verse 6, 7, and you start going, what in the world are they talking about? And so, again, the value proposition is you will have a good understanding of what the book of Jude is about. The book of Jude, uh, it was written by Jude or Judah, as uh, he was pronounced, and he is one of Jesus's four brothers. He wrote to a, a Messianic Jewish community who were actually very well-versed in some of the Hebrew writings and scriptures, and pretty educated in that realm, which is why some of the texts that he refers to, might be, uh, well, might be something that we're not as familiar with as his readers would have been familiar with. So Jude, as we'll see in his introduction, was going to write a different letter, uh, but all of a sudden realized that there were some false teachers within this community, and went, I I need to write about this now. So I did some reading about just false teaching and and was studying that some this week. It's not a, a new thing to the church, but it is interesting that the church at large is pretty, i say, well-versed or prepared from attacks from outside of the church. Maybe it's more expected to have attacks from outside the church. But attacks from within the church are a lot harder because they happen subtly, not quite as, uh, quite as maybe aggressively at first, sort of that uh, with the frog in the pot type of thing. And they can sneak up on us. And there's also relationships there. So when the False teaching comes from within the church. We might know the person, and we might not want to hurt their feelings, or don't know how to navigate those waters, or maybe we come across too aggressively. So this is what Jude is actually talking about now. So in in reading it, uh, Charles Spurgeon, this is in the early 1900s, was having a lot of this. There was some teaching that was bubbling up uh, that was putting the the sufficiency uh, of Scripture, sort of on trial. Uh, there was some other teaching and preaching that continued to happen in the pulpit that was denying uh, the substitution, substitutionary atonement uh, doctrine. And, and Charles Spurgeon and his frustration and really his concern that God was being robbed of his glory and that uh, men were being robbed of their hope. He, he, well, this is what he wrote. Spurgeon said, these destroyers of our churches appear to be as content with their work as monkeys with their mischief. That which their fathers would have lamented, they rejoice in. Avowed atheists are not a tenth as dangerous as those preachers who scatter doubt and stab at the faith. Now, maybe maybe you're like me and you like a good fight, and that you would say, huh, there's there's people out there that are that are saying wrong things, but let's get after them. I mean, as a kid, I'd love to physically fight, but now, uh, well, maybe I'll fight with my words. I'll be figure out how to tear them down, how to say something so witty and clever that people will know that they're an idiot and that I'm real smart. And it would make sense that if you think this way, right? Every news source that we watch and listen to—that's what we do. Hey. That other side, they're stupid. They're dumb. Listen to how dumb they are. Hey, let me get louder. Let me get more aggressive. Let me show you how better we are. And that when we have opposition, that might be our default. But, but Jude, he, he's not looking for revenge. He's looking for redemption. He wants something better for these people, and he wants something better for the church. It actually reminded me, as I was thinking through this, of uh, of the first line of a song that I have been humming all week long. Hey, Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. Yeah, so I'm not going to be part of the worship tryouts next month. But, it did make me think. What Jude's doing is, hey, don't make this bad. Take a sad song, take something that's not working, and, and let's make it better. And how do we do that? As we contend for the faith. So, my value proposition is we're going to go through the book of Jude this morning. So, if you have it, grab your Bibles. It's easy to find. It's at the very end of your Bible, is Revelation, and then it's one book forward. Now, The book of Jude, it's actually divided into three different sections. This first section is sort of an introduction and a charge. And then the second is the the longer section. It's a a big chunk of the book of the Bible. And it's a bunch of examples of warnings of uh, what's happening here and what will happen if this is left untouched. And then the third is uh, what are we going to do about it? And sort of addresses back to the charge. So that's how the book is divided up. So let's start right here. At the beginning, in verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So that is, Jude is one of Jesus' brothers along with James, Jesus' half brother. To those who are called, so again, he's writing to Christians, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So mercy, peace, and love. Jude will see all throughout Scripture. Loves threes. There's always a, a group of three, and maybe multiplied to you—not just added, but multiplied. This is not uh, second-grade math. This is fourth-grade math, right? There's abundance. We want lots and lots of mercy, peace, and love. So then he writes, "Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you, to contend for the faith." That was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So, Jude was going to write a longer book about their shared salvation. So this is about the fact that he's in a different location, but yet they share something that's so magnificent uh, that he was like, This is a this is a big deal. I'm gonna write about this. And we don't know if maybe he started pinning this out already, or maybe he was just getting his thoughts in order. But as uh, as he was planning on writing this longer book about his shared salvation, he then got wind of these false teachers and he went, Okay, I've gotta put that project. To the side right now, I have to deal with this and I have to deal with it now. So much that, hey, look, I was going to do something kind of bigger, but no, this is important and I need to deal with it. Which is really a first lesson kind of thing that we see in this that, hey, uh, immediately if there's a uh, false teaching, if there's something that's going on in, in our church, we've got to deal with it. This is not something to, to wait. So that's what he does. He writes there and he said, Now, here, here are the things that I'm seeing. That one, in this, this bad theology, which by the way, he can see that it's bad theology and bad thinking by the way they're acting. So he's seeing, hey, these are the actions, and so this is the belief behind those actions. Because the actions actually are rooted in what you believe. Is the first, that they're using grace as a license to sin. Perverting the doctrine of grace. So just remember the doctrine of grace, the, the, that we actually are forgiven, and free. In our world today, we hear a lot of victims, right? The victim mentality. And that it's not my fault. It's my, it's my family's fault. I'm the victim. It's my friend's fault. It's my, it's my enemy's fault. It's society's fault. I'm a victim here, and all of these bad things have been done to me. But you know, right? You know what? They're they might be right. They might be a victim, but the the problem is not that they're a victim. The problem is that you also have to acknowledge and know that you're a villain. That that you've actually caused pain and hurt to your families, and you've caused pain and hurt to your friends, and you've caused pain and hurt to maybe even your enemies in society, because we have this sin that we are both victims and villains. And we have to acknowledge that we are a villain and that we have sin and that it splashes on people, which splashes on people. And and it's only then that we can say, yes, I'm a victim and uh, I am a villain and, and condemned to continue to be a villain. And that's when we get to see, hey, no, but here's the doctrine of grace. That even, even though that you're a villain, the only one that is not a villain died for you and took on all of the condemnation and took on all of the shame so that you can actually be free from that. And so now you are free to not sin. You're now free to live lightly. You're now free to live in grace without shame or condemnation. That's the doctrine of grace. And what these people are doing is saying, oh, wait, I'm free. You, you died for me? You died for my sin? Well, now I can do whatever I want to do. Sweet. I oh, know, you You missed the point. You're asking the wrong questions and getting the wrong answers. No, no, no. They're saying, uh, these people are saying, hey, you know what? So sexual immorality, I can live the way I want to live. Because they've perverted, again, the doctrine of grace. And why is this? Well, it's the second thing, is that they've denied God's authority. They said, hey, Jesus is he really a big deal? I mean do, do his words really matter? Maybe he's just a a fine okay teacher. But where truth lies, the source it's going to come from me. It's going to come from within, not from scripture, not from Christ, but I am going to be my own authority. And so this is where they land. So, this is the opening charge of the book of Jude, and now Jude goes into giving a bunch of warnings. Now, if you were again, skimming the book of Jude, or maybe you've read it before, this might be the section that you come to and you say, "Ah, this seems very confusing. What are these stories coming from? I don't see them anywhere else in the Old Testament, and that's because they're not. But he is going to uh, quote and refer to some ancient writings that these readers would have been very familiar with. So he gives two sets of three different examples here. So we'll read the first and and unpack them. So starting in in verse 5. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, and has kept an internal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So we see three examples. First, Numbers 14, where uh, Israel is uh, having rebellion in the wilderness. And so God's saying, hey, you're going to have to stay in the wilderness. And then the second Um, is about some rebellious angels. This is actually from a Hebrew writing uh, book of Enoch, uh, the first book of Enoch, uh, quoting or maybe reinterpreting uh, in a creative way Genesis 6. And in this story, they have angels who have uh, left the heavens and came to have relationships, we'll say that for kids in the room, with men, which then reminds Judah of his third example, uh, which is the Sodom and Gomorrah, which is the reverse, where uh, men are having inappropriate relationships with angels. Now, I'm not going to get into how all that works, um, because I don't know, <laughs> and it would be awkward. So, uh, But that's not the point of this part of the scripture. What he's saying is, hey, look, these false teachers, what they're doing is disastrous, and it leads to to more disaster. So he says in verse 8, Yet in the like manner these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glory one. Do you notice what they're relying on here? They're relying on their dreams. That's their source of authority. It's coming from within. Which how often do we hear, hey, just, just follow your heart. Go with your gut. Hey, don't Don't follow your heart. Follow scripture. Follow what Jesus has for us. If we turn to other places for our authority, if we turn to our inward self, you know what, maybe that feels good. Feels like kind of empowering. But it's deceitful. And you will leave uh, unfulfilled and heading in the wrong direction. Then Judah gives us a, a bonus, a bonus example. Um, and this is actually from a, another ancient writing, the Testament of Moses in verse 9. But when the archangel Michael contended with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blaspheming judge, judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So here what, uh, what Judah is talking through is it was, a, a, again, about a kind of an interpretation of the book of Deuteronomy, and it's about Moses' body. But at the end of the day, what Judah is saying is, "Hey, the Lord rebuke! It is the Lord who has authority. Lord is the ultimate person and the ultimate uh, position and power of where our source of authority comes from." So then, uh, in verse ten, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively, that their sin will destroy them. And so then Judah gives three more examples about uh, what happens if these false teachers are left unaddressed in verse 11. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. So there's three examples here real quick. First was Cain who murdered his brother and then went and uh, founded a city which was plagued by violence, right? That this is what happened when this was left undone is that a whole city that created violence. And then second, uh, Balaam the sorcerer that tried to curse Israel and that wasn't working and so he stayed there and Lured them all into idolatry, and then the third is, uh, Korah number sixteen, led a rebellion against Moses, which then led more destruction there. That his point here is, hey, these false teachers, if you don't address it, it's not going to go away. We can't just ignore it and hope that bygones be got be bygones. But instead, we have to say, hey, we've got to address it. This is going to multiply. This is going to explode. And so then, uh, he gives some Old Testament examples of what these people are like, the chaoticness, the unhelpfulness, the selfishness. In verse 12, these are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up from the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Right? These people are the, like the selfish, selfish shepherds Of Israel. They're like clouds without rain, fruitless trees, chaotic waves. He's building the case hey, these false teachers, this is a big deal and it's got to be dealt with. So then he gives just a couple of warnings. The first warning um, is again from that book of Enoch, which is actually uh, in chapter one, quoting about six other Old Testament verses. About judgment. So that's in verse 14. Judah writes, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds and ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. And then Judah gives a second warning. This time, uh, that was more of an ancient text. This is a, something more recent where he's uh, quoting the disciples who they are actually quoting Jesus about hey, you shouldn't be surprised that this is happening. He writes, but you must remember, beloved. I love again that beloved. The predictions of our apostles. Our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause division, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. (laughs) It is these that cause division. So Judah then says set the stage. He said, Hey, let me warn you, this is a big deal. So what do we do about this? Well, he starts in verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourself up in the most holy faith. Building yourself up in the most holy faith, which is what? It's the gospel. So what are we to do with these false teachers? we to fight them. we to cut them down. And the first thing you need to do is to build yourself up in the gospel. Now, I don't know. What you think of when you think of the gospel, which means good news? Do you think of, is it light? Is it good news to you when you think of the gospel? When you think of church, is that good news? When you think of Jesus, is it good news? Or when you think of Jesus, do you think, I'm not good enough? Church, i got to do that. That's an obligation okay, every time I think about religion and Jesus, I feel all the shame of all the things I've ever done. If that's what you think when you think of the gospel, you know what? That doesn't sound like good news. That sounds like a burden. But Jesus goes, hey, my yoke, it's, it's easy. My burden, it's light. That the gospel is good news. And so, That's the first part. If you have forgotten the good news of the gospel, if you've not realized or remembered, hey, this is good news, that's the first thing we have to do. We have to build ourselves up in the gospel. We have to build ourselves up in this good news, and we have to remind each other about it. That's how we do it. We need to talk about it. That's why when on Sunday morning we open up scripture and we talk about the gospel, that's why we have community groups and life groups and Bible studies so that we can get in small groups of people and together remind each other, hey, this is the gospel. This is what we do. This is what we believe. And we can do it from a presentation standpoint, but then we also get to do it with with people who know us and who love us and care about us. And we get to remind each other of the gospel. And then... Judah continues, and praying in the Holy Spirit. This is the the posture that we have, that we get to remember as we remind ourselves and preach to ourselves and to each other the gospel, that we get to do it as we are praying in the Holy Spirit, that there is a, a yielding of what lives within us as we share and talk with each other, that the God who loves us and cares about us, who knows us, lives within us, and that's the overflow of our sharing the gospel, that there is a, a kindness and a gentleness that leads to repentance. In verse 21, and to keep yourself in the love of God. There's an obedience element to keeping yourself in the love of God. But we do need to remember and think through, and we always talk about this uh often, when we talk about obedience, because we want to be very careful of what obedience comes from and where it comes from. I mean, so, in the world today, there's about 8 billion people, and it keeps growing, right? And in the 8 billion people that exist today, you know this, but there's nobody like you. Okay, that's actually kind of amazing. I I couldn't imagine doing 8 billion billion things and not and having variations and uniqueness to all eight billion but that's because I'm not God. That's what God does is He's made eight billion unique people. But the brilliance and the amazing of this is the Imago Day is that the eight billion people are made in God's image. And with all of us being unique what that actually means is that you uniquely bear the image of God in a way that nobody else does. And that when we're with each other and we get to know each other and talk to each other and be with each other, we actually get to learn a piece of who God is in a way that nobody else can. And when we die, we're not going to ever be able again to perhaps experience and know that piece of God until we get to be with Him a big deal. And when we look at ourselves and talk about the value of who we are, that you uniquely reflect who God is, wow. And that is the position of obedience, that I get to be an image bearer in a specific, unique way of who God is, and I get to reflect who God is. And with that honor, I get to go, man, I want to be obedient to this God. He is my father. He is my Lord. And I get to love him in this kind of way. Not because it's going to win his approval in any kind of way. No, no, no. I'm his child. He already loves me as much as he could possibly love me. I get to do this because he's my dad. He's my Lord. He's the one that I get to honor. That's where the obedience comes from. It's from the foundation of us. The the gospel being presented to us to ourselves, it's from the foundation of us praying in the Holy Spirit that we then get to be obedient, and in our obedience, we get to wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Our hope is still even yet to come. And Jesus says, "And for those who don't know, for those who have doubt, have mercy on those who doubt. That we get to be kind as we point them to the gospel. We're not going to argue people into the kingdom." We're going to get to love people into the kingdom. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So, so what do we do with this? At Bethel downtown, well, the first is we keep our eyes open for false teachers. Yes, even at Bethel downtown that when someone stands here on this platform or that when someone in your life group or your Bible study is talking, that we want to say, hey, is that what Scripture says? Is that true? Because the Bible is the ultimate authority, not me, not Eric, not your life group leader or your Bible study leader, it's Scripture. And so we want to keep that as the source of authority and we want to be on watch for that. I mean, so we've seen, right, just as Judas says, this causes division. To speak plainly, The sexual immorality that has come from a lack of authority of the Scripture is in denominations just miles away from where we sit right now. That has become okay for us to follow our own truth, for us to do what feels good, to follow your heart, even when it's against what Scripture has said. And we do not want to be too arrogant or prideful uh, as a church that say, hey, that we are above that. We want to keep ourselves in check. And we don't want to follow into the easy way. The way of what culture is saying is okay. We want to stay true to what Scripture says. And so when we see someone going, hey, follow their heart. Have your own truth. Have your own personal truth. I get it. That might feel empowering. But it's also a lie. You're empowered by a source that is... Going to leave you empty. Now, again, remember, when we see or hear, not if, but when we see and hear false teaching in the midst, the goal is not to pounce them, tell them how stupid they are. Now, hey, hey, we need to contend for the faith. Remember? Don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. That's what we want to do. We're looking for redemption, not revenge. So here's what I want to do. I want to pray for us. And then I want to leave by the same benediction that Judah gave his church in the last two verses of this book. So would you pray with me? Lord, we come before you humbly and want to lay our pride down to say that we know that we uh, are victims and a villain and that we do not uh, have the corner of truth uh, of all churches here in Tyler. And so we want uh, to ask you to give us open eyes for when we see or hear a false teaching and then the courage to address it in grace and in love. We want to be a church that follows you. We want to be a church that loves you and honors you well. And we want to hold on to Scripture that you've given us as the truth. So may, Lord, that be a staple of who we are at Bethel Bible downtown. And may we not, uh, may we not go away from that. We thank you for this morning. We pray for anyone that doesn't know you, that they would know you. They would know your grace, they would know your love, they would know your compassion, and that they would believe. We ask this in Christ's name we pray, amen. Hey, would you stand with me as we read the last two verses of Jude? Now, to him is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. Go in peace.